0: The following is a real-time review of the Ringer app.
1: There's literally um, a cut of the movie where his. Oh, eyes, I lost you guys. I can't. We can't hear you.
0: Oh. All
2: right. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder if it's still recording both. Of I was wondering that Allowed. too.
0: Hmm. See, I see your audio, but I don't hear it. it looks like I guess
2: it looks like it's still recording. What? Hello? Oh, there you are. It's... Nope, is he gone?
0: I guess I'm going to... Wait. Here, un- unmute. It's still silver. Re- okay.
1: Can you hear Can us? Can you hear us?
0: Commending cohesive content. Exploring epic epilogues proudly praising proper part twos. It's the follow-up showdown continuation celebration with Paul Getz, Travis McMaster, and Lauren Pakorni. Now recorded using Squadcast. Hello and welcome to the follow-up showdown to Nerds in Quarantine Continuation Celebration. uh, Our longest title yet. I am your humbly human host, Paul Getz, and with me are my co-hosts who are so extraordinary I wouldn't be surprised to find out they were replicants. Travis McMaster and Lauren Picorny. It's really good to see you
2: guys. Heyo! This is the sound of my voice.
0: You'll never know the truth. While this is normally a show where we try to best disappointing sequels, we do, on occasion, like to sing out accolades for the second chapters that absolutely nailed it, and today we are shining the well-deserved spotlight on 2017's Blade Runner 2049, sequel to the 1982 sci-fi staple, Blade Runner. I feel like we got a lot to talk about, so without further ado, I am going to push it to Travis for two Travis McMaster minutes. Two Travis McMaster
2: minutes. Uh oh. And I gotta say, good luck on this one. Uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> these moves are big, complicated messes, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try. Okay, you ready? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be, Coach and go okay so blade runner is set uh in the year 2019 um there are colonies off world the environment has been destroyed there are robot cyborg things called replicants uh that are used as basically slave labor to make the off worlds habitable for humans uh, they rebelled, they fought back, as they do. There are four in particular coming to Earth to wreak, you know, muck, I suppose, or just be alive, and we don't like that. So the Blade Runners are special cops that hunt them down because they have special robot training to do that. Um, and the movie is just about Deckard, uh, Harrison Ford, pursuing these four rogues. And then there's also the company who builds them, the Tyrell Corp, wants him to meet this special woman, Rachel, that Tyrell has built for some reason. Uh, and then they kind of meet and fall in love. Um, and then there's questions about whether or not she is a replicant or whether Deckard himself is a replicant, depending on which version you're watching. Also, Edward James Olmos is there, and that's only remarkable now because he's Edward James Olmos. Blade Runner 2049 uh, is set in 2049. Ryan Gosling is a uh, also a Blade Runner, but he is himself a replicant. A new model designed just to hunt other replicants um the world is even worse shape there's no food um this man wallace has saved humanity by developing a protein thing that feeds us all that's relevant somehow because he's also wants to build even more blade or any more replicants to make a slave race to help get off planet earth meanwhile the replicants are having their own sort of naked naked singularity awakening and they've got like a revolution building and they're all trying to find this special child that Ryan Gosling has been looking for. I, I've ruined this. It's already so muddy. There's a lot going on. Um anyway, it's it's it comes out that it's Rachel and Deckard's baby that replicants can reproduce, uh, which would rock the world because it already is kind of setting up for humanity to die and the replicants to be the new order. Um and humanity is understandably nervous about that. Um and then oh um the end. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. You only went
0: 13 seconds over. um, And I thought you did pretty well. Um, Jumping right into it. I know that there are very famously multiple versions of Blade Runner, as you alluded to. Um, I know you guys watched the theatrical cut. Yeah, which is a very voiceover heavy version of of the story. And I watched the final cut, which is the most recent version, the one 100% approved by Ridley Scott the director. Now, you alluded to the fact that Rachel, it was questionable whether she was a replicant. I Yeah, I believe that Tyrell in the the scene she's introduced uh, says she was an experiment and Deckard says, oh, she's a replicant, but she doesn't know, uh, you know. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm just going to start from the beginning. Maybe we'll, we'll catch up to where I have questions about your cut versus my cut.
2: I have watched a handful of different versions of this movie since my childhood. I don't. So I might not be able to answer specific questions about the differences in this cut because they're all kind of mushed together in my head.
0: If you can't do it, I think Lauren can help you out here because you just watched it. Blade Runner is based on the Philip K. Dick novel. Do androids dream of electric sheep? This guy. Cool title. In oh, my very cool. Key differences in the novel to the film police that hunt down the replicants are not called Blade Runners and the replicants aren't called replicants. They're called Androids or Andes, which Ridley Scott thought sounded stupid. They got replicants from one of the screenwriter's daughter came up with it because of what she was studying in school. And Blade Runners came from a William S. Burroughs novel Blade Runner, a movie. And in that novel Blade Runners were people that did underground surgeries and like dealt illegal medical equipment, so they were literal runners of Blade Runner. Yes, and at some point, Hampton Fancher, who is essentially the main author of all things Blade Runner, as we'll come to find, uh, sc- uh, screenplay-wise, he wrote Blade Runner somewhere in in his script. Ridley Scott picked it out, said, "This is amazing. I want to use this." as our term and he said to be honest i stole it from this old novel and ridley scott said that's fine did
2: did they get the rights or anything or did ridley scott just go like, hey it's all right and did oh is, is he i didn't that's what he sounds like no but he's british <laughs> okay cool well that's good because i'm going to quote him a
0: couple times and okay. i had like a, a voice picked out for him i kind of didn't want to know but now I'll, I'll go british with it oh, so. all right yeah the screenplay was written by Hampton Fancher. His other credits, The Minus Man, a serial killer movie starring Owen Wilson. The Mighty Quinn, a cop movie starring Denzel Washington, has nothing to do with the awesome song. And then the script was punched up from this guy, but his name is David Webb Peoples, who wrote "Lady Hawk," Unforgiven, and Twelve Monkeys. Nice. Hmm. That sounds yeah. right. It was not overly well received in 82. Uh, it has a 90% Rotten Tomatoes score. So I guess critically it did pretty well, but it had a originally had a budget of 20 million. Ridley Scott ended up spending 28 million. Classic. Ridley. So he went way over budget. It. Ended up pulling in about $41.5 and was considered a failure because of how much it went over budget and because of how much it went over schedule. It went so far over schedule because of Ridley Scott constantly wanting to add things throughout the process that it was, first of all, there was an actor strike toward the end of production. And creative control was taken away from Ridley Scott hours after he shot the final scene. He had pushed up against this deadline so much that they said, whatever you do past this date is in our control. And he finished shooting the movie, but everything after that was out of his control, which is what led to the theatrical cut having a voiceover done by Harrison Ford. Oh. Um, At gunpoint, it sounds like. <laughs> Harrison Ford talks about this movie as the most frustrating production he's ever worked on. Not only because of a grueling shoot, uh, but also, most memorably, the voiceover he was forced to record over the theatrical release, which was written by, quote-unquote, clowns. Can you give me any kind of idea what that narration sounds like? Yeah.
2: So, yeah, it was like- really frustrating, because I could see why they wanted it. Like I said, I've watched this movie a lot since I was a kid. I don't really like it. Um, I also don't really understand it. Um, <laughs> so I will say that the narration helped me understand certain things plot wise, but didn't enhance my enjoyment of the movie. And in fact, kind of messed it up. Like when they, they, the, he would identify that the gibberish that everyone is speaking is called city speak and it's a mishmash of a bunch of other languages. It's that kind of thing. They just, he peppers facts in that make you just go, Oh, okay.
1: And it's super distracting because the contempt in his voice is just palpable. <laughs> like you can just tell he's like just hating every word. Like he's just glaring.
2: It sounds like holding his middle finger up the whole time. And they're like, he's just thinking like, you won't fire me. You want this yeah. narration, about me. So this is how you're going to get it. Right.
0: The Him saying that it was a grueling shoot does not surprise me because I will say that for it being a movie in which there's not much to his character or any character, really, they're all just kind of walking plot points, he's acting his ass off. And yeah. I really see it in ways that you don't really necessarily pick out of movies, even if they're action movies, where it's just like, it looks exhausting. The final standoff scene between him and Rutger Hauer's character is just a huge chase, and you are just tired
2: and cold. Probably real. Over over in constant rain, mm. in the 80s, early 80s. Yeah. If you just look at Ridley Scott's drawings, you can tell what kind of meticulous director he must be. And it's, I'm sure it's a huge honor to work with him. I would never do it cuz I get exhausted just watching him. Mm, yes. Well, he sounds uh, based on some of
0: these quotes I'm going to go into, he sounds like a little bit of a sass master.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh and
0: and not in a, you know, in a super endearing way. Harrison Ford claims that he and Ridley Scott agreed that Rick Deckard is not a replicant that was something that they established to each other as something that they agreed on however Ridley Scott has since come out saying constantly over and over again that yes Rick is a replicant
1: it's weird there's literally a cut of the movie where Deckard's eyes do the red red orb thing in them Yes, pretty he blatantly says he's a replicant.
0: What happens at the end? Deckard finds an origami of a unicorn. Yep outside of his door, which means not only that Gaff was there and could have taken him and Rachel out, but he decided not to, and he left it there as sort of a clue in for Deckard that he is a replicant, because without having been told by Deckard that he had these visions of a unicorn, which he has earlier in the movie, at least in the final cut, there would be no way of knowing that. So it must be like... It is with Deckard and Rachel where he knows her backstory because he's read her file.
2: Um, Which is a, a lot long. of steps to have to take. Oh, yeah. yeah like, I didn't... Yeah. Okay, so in the in, in our cut, I don't Which, believe there were any unicorn flashes no at all. They didn't no. use that unicorn footage that they used in Legend. In the final cut, there is
0: a out-of-place cutaway to a unicorn running through the forest yeah. that Rick just kind of sees... While he's standing there, like he's not dreaming, he's just kind of standing there. And it cuts to that, and then it cuts back to him, and then the movie continues. So, And that happens really early on. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just have lots and lots of notes about how that ending is not great. But I do like that it is open to interpretation. Which is, I think, uh, one thing that he and Harrison Ford maybe did agree on. But in any case, according to Harrison Ford, he and Ridley Scott made the agreement that Rick was not a replicant. Apparently, Ridley Scott has come out saying, How would anyone have known what was inside his head other than someone who knew what was in his file that had been implanted in his brain? Can't be any clearer than that. If you don't get it, you're a moron.
2: You know, it's just dancing to a song I can't quite hear. But yeah, yeah you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I was could have connected all those unicorn dots all on my own. Come on. I just don't think I, it's interesting at all if he's a replicant, which is a big reason why I'm not. I feel like people who love the first Blade Runner are really in the Decker's a replicant camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's much more interesting if he's just a normal human who got sucked into all this.
0: I, I like the open true interpretation thing. Not wanting to jump too far ahead into Blade Runner 2049 yet, but I think that how that movie plays its hand in also leaving it open to interpretation is pretty nice. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: in terms of the plot of that movie, it doesn't matter. It's extraordinary either way. Right. Ridley Scott cites the first Blade Runner as his favorite movie he's ever made. He calls it his most complete work. Um, Which, you know, from the guy who brought us... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) From the guy who brought us Alien... You know, I, (laughs) I don't, I, if it weren't for 2049, I think I probably never would have watched it again. I don't, I'm not going to throw the whole thing out. I'm not, I can't, the baby in this bathwater are some really cool visuals and concepts.
2: That are and still music.
0: Cool. oh yeah uh, the yeah. performance is there's yeah. so
2: much to, I love every ingredient of this movie and every single way I've seen them put it together I just it comes back with a no thank you
0: well I think that uh, what I would call it first and foremost besides hardcore sci-fi is artsy fartsy it is so artsy and so fartsy and I, don't know about that. <laughs> I, I maybe my I, tolerance. Know,
2: Fartsy Fartsy is a little
0: higher than yours. I mean, in terms of how much plot there is, you could have cut about a half hour, made it a nice 90 minute flick, and and there wouldn't have had to be all these slow... I like the slow... The the sack sequence
2: yeah. was
0: particularly tough for me, we, you know, and that love scene in particular is is a bit of a rough, like a rapey vibe.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really uncomfortable to watch.
0: And supposedly, both Harrison Ford and Sean Young had issues with that scene, the way it was written, the way it was directed, and Ridley Scott now admits it doesn't work because it's sort of questionable as whether or not she's consenting at all yeah mm-hmm. because he says to say kiss me yeah and then she says it but he says according to ridley scott the way he intended it was by the time she said put your hands on me
2: that was your invitation to the waltz i assumed that because that's how that scene would have been in a standard noir story in the 80s no, that's more. You're you right. A man and a woman. I right. mean, you want me to kiss you, or whatever, whatever. And it's supposed to be sexy because he's manly, or whatever. Yeah. I thought they were putting a spin on that scene where it's like it's that, but in this case, the robot. But you're right; she doesn't know she's a replicant. So
1: I think that's no, she like, does. At that but, point, yeah. yeah. But whatever. I think she. She. It feels like she. He's bullying her. It doesn't feel yeah. fully consensual. So I think at the time, like we just filmmakers just hadn't figured out how
0: a love scene uh, some had
1: yeah, like
0: even just comparing comparing um Han Solo to Decker.
2: Comparison Ford.
0: Comparison Ford. But I I also, to your point, Travis, I think that you're probably also right, uh, at least somewhat about the noir of it all. Because every single beat in this movie is a classic noir beat. He's constantly getting beat up. You know, it's all the, it's all the tropes of every single noir just with a sci-fi spin. And I kind of think that that, in the end with Blade Runner, is all it is. Uh, Ridley Scott's apparently original cut of this movie was four hours long and described as incomprehensible which <laughs> yeah.
2: it was close enough to that at 2 hours i certainly wouldn't wouldn't say that what i needed was more information by the end of the movie i just <laughs> really quickly want
0: to get out a couple actors notes dustin hoffman was originally cast Interesting. as rick Deckard. Huh. he apparently thought he was miscast and eventually left the project
2: just um, brought me in here because a marathon man that was a terrible dustin hoffman <laughs> cut that from the podcast cut that from the podcast
0: uh, we'll see uh, Martin Sheen was then offered the part but he was exhausted from having done Apocalypse Now um, Martin Sheen Rutger, would have been an interesting choice the thing is like Harrison did a good job but you could insert kind of anyone you know yeah. as long as they were able to sell hardboiled detective type um,
2: Harrison Ford is just a little bit too cool to play down on his luck ah, nobody likes old me I'm like everybody likes old you <laughs> what are you talking about I think his haircut in this movie helped. And
0: apparently in the script, he had a uh, old style detective fedora style hat. But Harrison Ford was incredibly against having to wear another hat as a character because he had just done Indiana Jones. So he specifically went out and got this contemporary haircut so they wouldn't put him in a hat. And Ridley Scott hated the haircut, but was stuck with it.
2: Um, I guess I'm a little... As to why a haircut means you a bad haircut means we can't put a hat on you.
0: I mean, I think he probably just refused. I think he was like, "Well, I already got the haircut," and then really Scott "Well, yeah, but it's not working for me." And then he was like, "Well, I'm not putting on the hat." Well, we're already behind schedule and two million over budget. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then um, the only other actor fact that's really sort of worth mentioning: Rutger Hauer was cast without audition. Sure, uh, And he was great. And he improvised a lot with the role, which I felt like was very clear.
2: Oh, did he not rewrite on his own his infamous, his famous uh, CBs? Yes. 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 He, he uh, almost every
0: speech, it sounds like was at, at the very least, at, he added flourish. And then the only other thing worth mentioning, uh, J.F. Sebastian uh, played wonderfully by William Sanderson. That character was uh, originally offered to Joe Pantaleano, old friend Ooh. of the show would have been good. But I, but I liked this guy's innocence, I think, a little bit more.
2: Yeah, he was fucking, He was perfect. It looked like they had maybe aged him up. Well, yeah, because oh. he's supposed to have a disease oh, is where he? he
0: is aging rapidly. That's why he connects to the replicants. I'm very surprised that wasn't in the narration. <laughs> <given>. <laughs> if it was, I missed it. And, and, and honestly, it was something that I missed watching the movie, too. I only found it out in the research. Because I I know that he talks about his disease, but I never understood why it mattered or why he was plugged into that machine or any of it. His storyline is kind of thrown away. I mean, I know he—well, I mean, it's important because he's the one who gets Rutger Howard in to see Tyrell and then Rutger Howard kills Tyrell. But then he just kind of walks away sad. With Rutger Hauer walking after him going, wait, oh, I'm I'm sorry. It, oh, oh, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> See that character again. In
2: one of the cuts, does he do something? Does he
0: die? Or I mean, not in the final cut anyway. I know besides the two cuts we've been talking about, there is the quote unquote, director's cut, which came out in 1992 and is apparently what launched Blade Runner into cult status. Apparently 10 years after its initial release is when people really sort of latched on and started liking it. However, that director's cut was not approved by Ridley Scott. Hmm. So it is not in any way a director's Hmm. cut. And the final cut is the only true director's cut. And that came out in 2017, the same year as Blade Runner 2049. Oh, then I've never even seen that cut. I think a lot of the fixes in it are minor. For example, the scene in which Deckard kills the replicant that runs through multiple plate glass windows. Yeah. Which, by the way, window number two was very comical for me. (laughs) Um, I thought window number one, I was like, oh, this is brutal. Oh. And then she stand up and runs again (laughs) and runs through (laughs) another window. I I laughed a little bit. Anyway, um, apparently the original, because the actors were on strike, he used body doubles to just film whatever he could for a long time. And the final version of that that ended up in theatrical cut, it was just like like a weird person wearing a wig. Uh. And he reshot it and used digital stuff to make it look the way he wanted
2: in the final Uh. cut.
0: What's interesting about all the cuts is they're all like the same length, but for like a minute.
2: I feel like, and I, maybe I'm just Completely wrong, but in this watch through, I felt like I was seeing scenes I was unfamiliar with. But it has been at least 2012 since I saw Blade Runner.
1: No, we watched it together. We did?
0: Yeah.
2: I love you so much. I
0: love you. <laughs> uh, the only other silly thing that I wanted to point out Daryl Hannah, when she first meets her name is Pris in the movie, of course, yeah. but when she first meets JF Sebastian, when she's on that street, And she gets to where she's sleeping. What I really like is that it's just a pile of trash that looks like it's like made of paper. But it is such a curated pile of trash. It looks like a perfectly bundled into a bed, like into a blanket that she just immediately slips under real comfortably pile of trash that hasn't blown away. Too perfectly placed Almost like, yes. a, like
2: when a Disney chick monk goes into a tree and like grabs the leaf and there's an acorn for a pillow. And it's
0: fine. The idea that she's set up a little nook for herself. It's just that trash doesn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jumping back to the weird sex scene that Harrison Ford and Sean Young didn't like. Apparently the take that they used, Harrison Ford pushed her too hard. So her, her reaction is real. And apparently, to break the tension uh, after the facts, Harrison Ford mooned her and tells that story
2: very jovially. Did that, All the did time. that, work? Did that work? Did she like yeah. that? Apparently it worked. Okay. But like,
0: okay.
2: Well, I feel like yeah. I maybe I maybe had to be there. I, I don't know. If anything is ever tense between me and anyone on the planet, uh, mooning me will <laughs> not make it better. It will make it much worse. And I will not probably be able to talk to you for a little while. Uh, and oh, another reason
0: I forgot that I wanted to ask about the end scene in the theatrical cut is because apparently the footage used in that last shot is unused footage from The Shining. That, That's what I said. Really? <laughs> I said, interesting. I said-
1: It's Shining-esque sweeping mountain footage.
0: Apparently what happened is that the, you know, the producers were forcing all of these changes on the theatrical cut. And Ridley Scott reached out to Stanley Kubrick in order to get footage to make this ending work for him. And Kubrick said, as long as you don't use anything that's in the final cut of the, the movie, you can have whatever you want. Cool. That's awesome. Okay, and then the final (laughs) cool fact is that there is a famous Blade Runner curse. Apparently, within a year of the release of Blade Runner, the following brands featured in the movie all experienced either bankruptcy or a huge financial loss. RCA, Atari, Cuisinart, TDK, The Bell System, Pan Am, COS, and Coca-Cola, because that was the year they released New Coke. Hmm. So it became known as the Blade Runner curse. Every single company that invested in advertising in Blade Runner lost money within a year, with the exception of Qingdao beer, which is why I'm drinking this. And every single brand that lost money is referenced in 2049. Uh, that's great. Okay, so then really quickly, I'm going to run through the other sequels that exist pre-2049. Okay, so there is the first Blade Runner video game released in 1985. Uh, It is a side-scroller for the Commodore 64, and it was based only on the film's score
2: due to licensing
0: issues. So the only thing in it that relates to the movie is the score. In 1997, a PC (laughs) game called Blade Runner, written by Hampton Fancher, which tells a side story from the perspective of another Blade Runner named McCoy and features the return of the characters Eldon Tyrell, Gaff, Leon, Rachel, Chu, J.F. Sebastian, and Howie Lee, all voiced by the original actors, with the exception of Edward James Olmos. Then there are sequel novels written by K.W. Jeter, uh, who is a friend of Philip K. Dick's, and after Philip K. Dick died, attempted to continue the story of Rick and Rachel, while further bridging the gap between the book and the film. Uh, and those novels are called Blade Runner 2, The Edge of Human, Blade Runner 3, Replicant Knight, and Blade Runner 4, I and Talon. Then there is a comic book, which is an, a direct sequel to the novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So not a Blade Runner sequel, but a sequel to the novel called Dust to Dust. This is a really fun one and makes me want to watch this movie, David Webb Peoples, the man who was hired to punch up the script after Fancher originally wrote it, he wrote a movie in 1998 called Soldier, starring Kurt Russell, which he says is a sidequill to Blade Runner and takes place in the same universe. Oh.
2: Yes. My household was a big, big soldier fan household. Love mm. it. it. In that movie, they um, as they're going through Kurt Russell's soldier history, they ref, they name check some battle that is in the Blade Runner universe that takes place on this junkyard planet, um, and so there's like a lot of cool shots of like old battleships or whatever. I think you do see one of the cop Blade Runner ship uh, mm. cars in the junkyard. That movie's dope, though. Mm.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, I want to see it, and I love Kurt Russell, so I'm it's- in. Okay, so thanks to Ridley Scott, the Alien movies also take place in the same universe, as revealed in Prometheus, that Eldon Tyrell was Guy Pierce's character's mentor. Gotta watch Prometheus you, again. You gotta watch all the Alien movies if you want to get the full Blade Runner story, apparently. Then there are three prequel shorts to Blade Runner 2049... 2036 Nexus Dawn, 2048 Nowhere to Run, both directed by Luke Scott, son of Ridley Scott, and then Blade Runner Blackout, 2022, an anime directed by the creator of Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo, Shinichiro Watanabe, who is also set to release an upcoming anime on Adult Swim called Blade Runner Black Lotus. Awesome! And all of those prequel shorts written by Hampton Fancher once again. And then the the only other thing worth mentioning is there's a VR game currently called Blade Runner Revelations. Uh, It takes place in 2023, so right after the first one, pretty much, and uh, stars a Blade Runner named Harper and features uh, Gaff once again. Okay. Uh, Um,
2: I'm very excited that all of that material exists for people who love the Blade Runner (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess this must be how people feel when I talk about all the weird Star Trek stuff, and they're just kind of looking at me blankly going, and this is how you spend all of your free time. So
0: finally, we've reached Blade Runner 2049. (laughs) Um, An 88% on Rotten Tomatoes this one. To be lower than the first doesn't make any sense to me, but there you have it. Uh, also considered a failure it had a 185 million dollar budget made 260.5 million worldwide but was projected to make 400 million ridley scott blames its poor performance on it's slow long too long i would have taken out a half hour pretty bold in my opinion for him to say because he set the pace with that first one.
1: It's, it's, yes. Isn't only like 20 minutes longer than the first one or something? It's
0: 45 minutes longer than the first one. Oh, I mean, okay. it is is—it is long. I'm not gonna say it's not long, but I think every single cue in terms of pacing and music and yeah. attitude is directly trying to recreate the universe of the first one. Yeah, and if I,
1: also it doesn't drag. Like I, I, I've watched it like, yeah. Four times. And every time I watch it, I keep worrying, like, oh, is this going to be boring? And then it's, like, almost over. I'm like, oh, man.
2: But almost every single Ridley Scott movie is slow and really long. I appreciate a director with that kind of cojones, but Ridley, buddy. (laughs) He was set to direct 2049. Oh. But instead
0: stepped back and only produced because he was busy doing alien covenant new young I mean, maybe chap. he was trying to dig himself out of the prometheus hole i did not prometheus. like
2: it. <laughs> no i didn't either covenant is yeah. so good you will probably like prometheus a little
0: bit yeah it more.
1: is surprisingly good
0: i mean it's kind of uh the way i feel because of 2049 about blade runner mm-hmm. i like blade runner more because it is necessary To get to 2049. It's very necessary. 2049, also written by Hampton Fancher, our Blade Runner boy. Co-writer Michael Green, who wrote Logan. Nice. Hampton Fancher only agreed to write the sequel if he could do it in a novella format. So he did. Apparently the novella was called Acid Zoo and featured an ending in which Rick Deckard died.
2: Is Acid Zoo available anywhere? (laughs) I don't know. I I would look that up. Sounds pretty cool. I speak to the man who did the research.
0: Well, there was a lot. Okay, I think you should be noticing there is a lot to say here. The actors' notes I have for 2049. Uh, apparently, uh, Neander Wallace, the Jared Leto character, originally written for David Bowie.
1: Oh yeah, man. I remember. I, I yeah. forgot that. That's what a bummer! The
2: worst news. Yeah, right before. Yeah.
1: That would have been really, really good because we were both bemoaning the casting of Jared Leto in this movie.
0: It also almost went to Gary Oldman and Ed Harris. So I guess it was an Uh, older character. We could have had Ed
1: Harris.
0: Yeah. Jared Leto
1: instead of Ed Harris. He's still
0: alive. Yeah, Leto uh, was one of the weaker points of this for me. I loved Love, who I would really say is the villain. Yes,
1: this he's very good.
0: Oh, the MVP of the villain side of this movie. Oh, man. Very good.
2: That character could have been played very flat or one-dimensional or mustache-twirly, and that actress whose name I'm I can't remember brings like a really interesting anger, sad child wisdom to the role. That's just like just beneath the surface is just confused angry rage Mm -hmm. but on top of like complete control and intelligence
0: love it harrison ford as far as 2049 goes he was attached to this movie before the director Uh, as soon as he got this script he says it's one of the best he's ever read so he was gung-ho from go on 2049 which is very very cool Um, also he's great in it and i really like that Basically, thirty years passing and going through a lot of shit makes that character super interesting. And you don't even need to say what happened. It's just, oh, he's old now, and he's been through a lot. And I'm so on board with every watching this character do anything.
2: I super love the um, building a Las Vegas that looks like Las Vegas, but still looks like it belongs in the Blade Runner universe. Uh, first of all, it was brilliantly done. Very effective uh, designs by Sid Mead, original Blade Runner designer. Um, I think that's also a perfect place to introduce this version of Deckard, because we're not in his on his turf where we are used to seeing Deckard. Where maybe it would stand out a little bit more that he. It's been 30 years, and he. I like you said, Deckard wasn't too much of a character in the first one, so you yeah. might notice more. So putting him in a whole new setting in the Blade Runner universe really helps ease us into any adjustment period we might need with what's going to happen when Harrison Ford shows up.
0: Fun fact, Denis Villeneuve very proudly boasts that, yes, Sid, Me- Sid Mead designed the whole Vegas landscape, except it was his idea to put in those erotic statues, <laughs> um, which I did find to be a very fun detail. Like, okay, yeah, if Vegas continues, sure.
2: Oh, I also mm. like the idea that there was just some sort of past... Dirty bomb event and Vegas is just largely unlivable. Yeah. But Harrison yeah. Fort, uh, Deckard lives in this sweet terrifying hotel. casino. Oh, sweet hotel, terrifying casino. <laughs> However, you shining.
1: I, I was looking at it and like I realized logistically it'd be terrifying to live there alone. But a part of me is like, oh man, like just having that huge, quiet building knowing you're the only one there with your dog. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds, I mean, it cool. sounds cool.
0: Another fun fact I have is uh, Sean Young. Okay, so Rachel, the uh, replicant that Wallace makes for Decker to sort of try to try to tempt him, that looks exactly like Rachel from the first Blade Runner. Uh, so that was played by a performance double named Lauren Pita. Sean Young, however, was brought in to train her in reproducing all of the mannerisms and the, her gait. These scenes were filmed in secret, and apparently Young was encouraged to voice boycotting the movie before its release because she wasn't asked back. Mm -hmm. Even though, like, she was there and she was a part of it, but she was, for some reason, because they wanted to make that such a surprise to the fans, they went so far as to have her, like,
2: outwardly voice. I you know, I understand yeah. the sort of P.T. Barnum performance nature. That's fun and interesting, but I also don't, I don't need to be tricked into a movie. You don't have to lie to me and tell me something's not in the movie so that when it is in the movie, I'll go, Oh, ho, 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 you got me. Yeah,
1: like JJ denying cons and into darkness doesn't make it exciting whenever that's revealed.
0: Yeah. Mm, yeah. A lot of other things don't make it exciting, <laughs> too. But, <you> know. <laughs> Dang. Yeah.
1: I, I was wondering why they didn't just ask Sean Young, Sean Young back for the role.
0: I, I know this, uh, actually. It is because Duny... Uh, the director specifically wanted to do this in a way that hadn't been done before, as a way of avoiding the criticism that had already uh, befallen uh, Rogue One, um, and and bringing back uh, Carrie Fisher in that way. He just didn't want to. He didn't want to chance it looking like that, um, and thought he could do better. And I think he did do better. Oh
2: yeah, that's that's yeah. incredible.
0: It's, it's
1: the best, like fake fake, if you will, I've ever seen.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> we actually—I mean, probably the most expensive too, or one yeah. of. Well,
1: that's what I was thinking. Like, if you have the yeah. actual face, wouldn't it make like the digital overlay easier? They had the
2: actual face. They scanned yeah. Sean Young's face. That's true, and, but they're also Sean Young's face looks different now.
1: That, yeah. So yeah, scanning yeah.
2: her face is good for her expression, but they'll still have to build. So my final. Fun facts for 2049
0: before we just start rolling crazy is the opening scene with Dave Bautista uh, was the original opening to the first one, um, or at least very, very close to it. I don't know why it was changed, but that
2: was apparently uh, how it was originally going to open was Deckard go? Find a replicant.
1: I am
2: very glad it was changed because one of the things that I love most about Blade Runner and that stuck with me the most when I first saw it as a kid is the opening scene. Um, which was very upsetting to me as a, as a child because I didn't understand what I was seeing. This guy getting kind of put off by not like by the questions. You know, everyone's behaving incorrectly, and I'm so cool. I, as an yeah. adult, I understand that's the point, but as a child, I'm like, this is upsetting. Why would you flip a tortoise over? Oh, he shot that guy. Okay, yeah. anyway, moving on. Um, no hmm. one explaining anything to me. I'm seven.
1: Also, um, if they're going with the angle that Deckard isn't a replicant, a replicant of Dave Batista's size, of course, I realized as I said. Right now, he doesn't need to be that big in the
0: original one. <laughs> yeah, it certainly but probably was adapted it, somewhat. It yeah.
1: would have, um, but I, still, like a replicant, I feel would have kicked his ass anyway. Well, he,
0: all the replicants <laughs> kicked his yeah, ass. That's so true. He he that. gun is he does all his fighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I pointed out on this watch through of twenty forty nine when I was I don't want to say bemoaning, but I guess I was sort of pointing out the ways in which the movie would be a little different if Harrison Ford wasn't the decades-long megastar he is um and one of those was during the casino fight when they're in the like the hologram bar mm-hmm. um they're fighting and obviously Brian gosling is a replicant and you cannot beat a replicant but harrison ford is mm-hmm. fighting because he's got that human tenacity and after a certain mm-hmm. point ryan gosling says like what's he say like i, I don't want to fight you anymore we can't yeah. but i don't want to fight you
0: yeah, like you're making it hard. I don't want to hurt you, but you're making it hard. That's yeah. a great
2: line. That's where yeah. the, that's, you know, and I feel like that's where the scene should end. Where both combatants realize what the score is and maybe we should talk. But because Harrison Ford is a decades long beloved. No. Start, no, you know what I'm I mean? going to disagree with you on this. I do know what you're about to say. Okay. What I
0: disagree with is that I like that. Then Deckard goes about punching him and then says, we could keep doing this or we could have a drink or whatever. Like, I like that. Not because, and I, I am able to separate Deckard from Harrison Ford in that moment and just say what I like about that is it kind of shows his humanity. It it gives him a character moment in which he knows he's losing, but he is at at least trying to prove something. If not to K to himself at that point, I feel like he knows that K is not going to kill him. So he might as well just show him that he's tough and he's not going to back down. Like, I don't know. I I I like that. What I, what I did write down though, that I find very comical is that there's that scene where they're the Vegas, the hotel gets bombed and Wallace's people come and arrest them. And Harrison Ford starts fighting two of the cops Mm -hmm. and it cuts for a very long time to a shot of Ryan Gosling. Like, getting up from the ground after the explosion. And in that time, you've seen Harrison punch twice. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you hear him punch 10 more times <laughs> before he is subdued. And I wrote down, Harrison added 10 punches <laughs> you don't even have to see him make just to prove, okay, this guy is badass. Yeah. It doesn't matter if Deckard is tough. Right. That was never the point of his character. He is good at his job in the first one, but he gets beat up constantly.
2: Something I really really appreciate about Harrison Ford as an actor, something that I think he is really really exceptional at is acting like he's in real pain. <clears throat> gets his fingers bruised yes. in Blade Runner when he Uh, In Indiana Jones, when he's got like that, he drinks that blood poison or whatever, and it's doing something to his body. He can sell physically and with his voice like like you actually believe that's what the noise he would make if I broke his finger.
0: Apparently, when they were shooting that scene, Harrison Ford accidentally punched Ryan Gosling in the face. And then the way he made it up to him is he came to his trailer with a bottle of scotch, offered it to him, then poured Ryan Gosling a glass of the scotch and left with the rest of the bottle. (laughs) Super cool. Uh, (laughs)
2: Amazing. I remember...
0: We don't need to do the normal questions for this because we're not trying to outpitch it. So uh, I have a couple new questions. First, did uh, the first Blade Runner need a sequel?
2: Uh,
1: Apparently.
2: (laughs) Yes. Like, you know, five years ago, I would have said no. No. Uh-huh. Um, what, you know, because even though I'm not like Blade Runner is not my cup of tea, I sort of feel like what more could you add to this? It's it's kind of the beauty of Blade Runner is the question mark. So I feel like a sequel will only maybe answer the question. And that's not the point. This movie, I think, is such a great example of a good sequel of, in my opinion, a sequel better than the original. At Agreed. The, at the very least. A sequel, even if you don't like the content of the movie, or if it does something with the mythology that you disagree with, I don't think it's arguable that the movie is expertly made. It is
0: a visual and audio Mm. feast. And I remember, I mean, when I first saw it, it was IMAX. And it definitely lost some uh, not being an IMAX this time. Yeah. But um, every single shot is gorgeous. And it and in the first one, they definitely go for that. I, I think it was a long time ago, and so it can't be as perfect. It is there are moments in it that feel a little where it's like, oh, they couldn't quite get it just right, but they got what they could
2: in the first. Nineteen eighty-two. I, I understand what you mean, and now we're just we're so slick that there's right. you know there's no stop. Yeah. Watching the movie now is one of the only times that I feel like you're supposed to watch a movie. In a movie theater, this and like maybe yeah. like Gravity or Interstellar, watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine on my TV feels like I'm looking at the wrong end of a telescope.
1: It's also yeah. Yeah. by um the fact that the uh, the the text the text that they have on screen oh
0: tiny it's tiny I thought it was furious. I mean, there was several times I had to pause and like walk up to my television to read it. If someone didn't like Blade Runner. I think it's pretty possible, with the exception of Travis, I guess, that they wouldn't like Blade Runner 2049 mm. for some of the same reasons. It is also artsy-fartsy. It's better, but it is that same slow, very artistic burn in which, you know, in ter- there is a lot of plot, and there is a lot of them needing to explain the specifics surrounding the plot. You know, I could see it being a, a movie that doesn't appeal to to everybody,
1: I agree. Um, I think the because I, I was like watching, I was like, okay, it'd be interesting to watch this time and see what 2049 is doing that Blade Runner didn't because it is doing a lot mm. of the same things. But I think the main thing it does, 2049 does, is that the, the plot's just easier to follow. Mm. It's a mm-hmm. little simpler, I think. It's a little more straightforward, and there is is nuance in between. But the plot that we're following, I think, is. Clearer.
0: I also think it gives you a an emotional core.
1: Yes, and they're uh, the more relatable. I feel.
0: Yes, I think that it is saying something by doing that about what it is to be human. Because I would say that like Kay's character, who is a replicant, reads as more human than the human characters, mm-hmm. who are essentially following their their a to b's. And I would say. Probably the most human character in the movie is Joy, Mm -hmm. the AI, who is his girlfriend. And I think that she adds an incredible layer of sweetness and humor and sort of bringing you back to this feeling of being home and working things out plot wise, as well as emotion wise, uh, because she's always the one who's there uh, to care for him. And I would say in all of the Blade Runner's movies, there's not a lot of
2: care. I was noticing this watch through with Lauren that for much of the movie, we're watching characters who are their whole driving force is just trying to figure out if they are, I don't know, more than they are, if they are alive, if they are real boy or if they are, you know, whatever that spark humanity they're searching for. But that question seems moot because the movie's answering it by showing us, here's a scene with no humans. A robot is talking to a hologram, and they're both Mm -hmm. wondering if they matter, if they are alive, if they are just going through programmable mood.
1: You know, and I feel like that's part of, like, his journey, you know, of course, spoilers. I think that's why he he believes so fully that he is the child, because Mm -hmm. he's like, to have a soul means to be born. So I feel like because he feels like he has a soul, that's why he clings on so tightly to the idea that he was the born replicant child.
0: Bringing up uh, Madam, the Robin Wright character, the moment where she implies that she would, that she wants to sleep with him, Mm. and then he lets it go, is such a wonderfully human moment, and and it's showing, even though he's not a person, that he's a better person? the other question i was going to ask about 2049 would be why does it work and i think we've kind of already gone over that
2: in a lot of ways and i found myself everything i have to say positive about blade runner 2049 is what people who loved the first one say about that so Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if both movies are doing the same thing just in different decades if i had been my age in 1982 watching blade runner i'm sure i would have loved it the thing that loses me is that Blade Runner is making a statement about the '70s and the end of the '70s and where it's going from there, whereas 2049 was made today for me.
1: I wonder if 2049 operates on the assumption that Deckard is a replicant.
2: Oh, it does. I can answer that. I can talk. I can speak because of that
1: because <laughs> the whole big deal about you know the replicant child being born is they're like we can create our own, and I'm like, okay, well if it's human replicant, that's not as confident an assumption that if it's replicant, replicant, create a child.
2: Ah, but I think that was Paul's point earlier is that it's exciting either way. And that was oh, the yeah. point of the, I, I call them the naked singularity. I don't know who they are. The, the replicant rebellion. They're right, saying, the
0: oracle of this movie.
2: Yes. She was saying that it doesn't matter if a replicant impregnated her or if a human impregnated, her. we can get pregnant. We can program. Mm-hmm. Whether it is just with humans now, it will be with replicants soon. We are the future, and that is why you are scared. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, um, and it- Gaff says that that cryptic line about something in Deckard's eyes. Oh Right, yeah. right.
1: I wonder why he didn't make an origami horse. I feel like that would have made more sense than like that cow or bull or whatever. The sheep,
0: sheep that he sheep. makes in twenty forty nine is a reference to the book do androids dream of electric yeah, sheep
1: that makes sense but That's, i feel like it would have it, it would have also made sense and been fun if he'd given k uh,
0: yes because he's been dreaming yes. about
1: that wooden horse you know i feel yes. like that would have been well, well, there's done.
0: also just a lot of him walking around with that toy horse might have been overkill right, right. Um,
2: yeah. and they saw that option too and they chose to go sheep um, I don't know why, but I, I, I'll I just, I just told you why, um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've talked about a lot for a long time, but I do want to try to do multiple things very quickly. So if you could, what is each of your individual favorite moments from each film? Shoot.
1: Ah! Um,
0: cause so- I have mine. So I'll start go first. You go first, yeah. Okay. So Blade Runner, my favorite scene in the first movie is him investigating the photograph and moving, zooming in, and moving through the room within the course of the photograph. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I'm no. He's going through what is Enhancing. what is yes, enhance, enhance. It's yeah. the enhance sequence, but it, it is literally a photograph that he puts into a. Uh, program like a floppy disk almost and then he looks at it and is able to move as oh. if the photograph hasn't captured it has captured the entire apartment independent of what you see in the frame yes um, that is my favorite scene in Blurgener. i think it's the coolest sci-fi idea that is shown that's not necessarily part of the major plot. It's just like a cool, like, whoa, you know, like I, I never would have thought about a photograph in this way. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super. Cool. Huh. Um, and then my favorite scene in Blade Runner 2049 is very, very brief. It is after their car crashes in sort of the big junk pile right before love destroys all the hobo jawas Orphan. Uh, Orphans. That's right. That's oh. right. <laughs> yeah. When Joy is flickering in and out, and yeah. Kay is unconscious, and she's yelling at him, Kay, Kay, like right. trying to revive him. It's heartbreaking. It is so, it just got me so deep in the heart. And it is also just the coolest, coolest concept to watch. There's this uh, AI program flickering in and out you know because they're not connected to a power source but they are feeling what is so so human and so like that that's that's my favorite moment of the whole movie I like- and i love the movie yeah.
2: yeah i'm gonna take it from a character we haven't really discussed yet sort of to give her her day the prop um of the would you mm-hmm. call it the imagineering oh yeah imagine or the something scope the Imaginiscope. I don't know. Her little Imaginiscope accordion camera lens thing. It's such a simple-looking device that I completely believe is capable of all of these incredibly fine mechanics. And it yeah. looked like everything in Blade Runner 2049. It looks real. The, all Every piece of tech they use, even if I don't understand it, I can see how it works when they use it. They're not just throwing a bunch of extra buttons and knobs and lights on shit for fun. So that arguably one of the most complex piece of machinery in the movie and one of the most foreign to us still looks real. Mm -hmm. I still buy it.
0: No, you're you're right. And that's a very good point about both of these movies is that they are pushing this idea of where we could take technology, but it's never outside of the realm of our understanding.
1: It's really hard to choose, but I think... The sequence I like most is when he gets to when Kay gets to Las Vegas. There's like there's something so cozy about that hotel, and just like again going back to like the idea that you you know you're alone there, yeah, you and your dog. And I think that's it, it. It is that same thing that I always am drawn to about like post apocalyptic worlds. That like seclusion and that abandonment and how you you can just live in a giant hotel and like drink all
0: the booze <laughs> like and very uh, last man on earth.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I've always been very drawn to that. So I guess that's that's my favorite part.
0: Cool. Very very cool. Uh, okay. And then the last thing I want to try. This is a segment that I'm hoping that we can continue on, and I I want to talk about unsung heroes. Hit it, Paul Junior. <laughs> Unsung heroes! Sweet. Oh, that guitar was so expensive. Actors or characters who, like, you just wouldn't mention normally. So you have one. I have my oh, like, own. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, All right. I really like the um bald archive. Man. That is exactly who I was going to talk about. He's so good. He leaves such an impression. He's like... I know. He gets across a lot of personality and character in a very short period of time. And you like him very fast.
0: Yes. I, was, I put him down as the Wallace Corporation receptionist. He's in like a scene and a half. Mm-hmm. And then he goes away and he never comes back. He, he's one of those characters that sets the world. You know, as you watch him, you're like, I know I'm in a different world, and this guy is a normal person in that world. He also has a line that I pointed, that I wrote down that's, he's talking about the records and what records are left of of a replicant that old. And he says, "Uh, there aren't many left, and what there is, is thick milky. Yeah. Which... The phrasing of that is so awesome and sci-fi because it's a phrasing that you've never heard before, but it obviously fits and we all know what he means. Yeah. It's also the type of line that as an actor, I feel like I could have seen on a uh, sides that I was auditioning with and not known how to say it. And he
2: just, he
0: knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah.
2: Uh, Next time I'll keep an eye out beforehand. Uh, Yeah. I just want to do this from from now on. Sure. For every movie. I'm gonna, gonna put because
0: I oh, couldn't find one in Blade Runner. Sorry, um, there aren't many minor characters that stand out. They're all yeah, like if okay. they have lines, they have a lot of lines.
2: I would say the I, I really a standout would be um, the the noodle chef who had to translate for decker I was
0: gonna say, oh, oh that, that is, is a cool, cool you're gonna, you're under arrest.
2: <laughs> I, I think he did a really good job of him sounding like both a little put out and also like I, they're cops. I kind of gotta do this. Yeah. I also love, particularly about that scene, is you don't know what he's saying, but
0: Deckard says four and he holds up two, and then Deckard says, No, I said four, and then he holds up two again. And so even though you don't know what he's saying, you do understand because it's a human, like, because it's a regular interaction. It's like, okay, well, he's saying, he understands what he's saying, but he's saying something else. You know what I mean? Like, it's. It's so cool. All right, guys. Well, um, we have got to go. But this was a blast. Like, I'm glad we got to watch these movies again. I'm
1: totally down to do this uh, uh, format of an episode again, because I like talking about good sequels.
0: Yeah, and I think that there will probably be uh, sequels that we can do where we don't have to talk so much technical and behind the scenes like these are dense movies yeah there's a lot to unpack just to take us out uh, Ridley Scott has said that he would be up for making more Blade Runners Denis Villeneuve has said that he it would be interested in working in the world again, but it would have to be a story unrelated to any of the stories I've already told.
2: Yeah, I think that's, it's that's fair. leave that's, well that's enough that's alone. Hard. It's
0: perfect. Next time we won't get to probably watch as good of a movie, but uh, I do look forward to it anyway. Um, yeah. So thanks for your time, guys. And,
2: and thanks for your yeah, thoughts.
1: Well, I love it. yes, thanks for you, <laughs>
2: Paul. And hey, thanks to the makers of Blade Runner 2049. And God bless anyone who tries to make a movie after that. I don't know why you'd bother. On the next follow
0: up showdown. Today, the movie we'll be focusing
2: on is S. Darko. I feel like the director, whatever he got out of Donnie Darko, it's very different than I got out of Donnie Darko.
1: Like, whose perspective is it? I don't
2: know. <laughs> I'll um, anyway, <laughs> I didn't
1: like the movie. Yeah, no.
2: <laughs>